seated, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation with me. We're going to continue in that book, Revelation, the last book of your Bible. If you're new with us, if you're not familiar with it, the last book of your Bible is the book of Revelation. Last week, uh, if you were here, you know that Tyler walked us through Revelation chapter 5, right? Where we saw the Lamb, who we identified as Jesus, who was the only one worthy to take the scroll from the Father, right? And Tyler mentioned last week that the one seated on the throne was holding a scroll. And that scroll we identified as something that represents, symbolizes the end of human history, right? So in other words, this scroll that the Father is holding in his hand, it's his plan, or we could say it's his will for history. And did you notice last week what was on this scroll from Revelation chapter 5? I'm actually going to put it on the screen, Revelation 5.1, just in case you didn't notice this last week. Before we get into our, our text, it's going to have everything to do about this scroll. And last week we saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the Bible says, Revelation 5.1, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And so the Father, he's holding this scroll, and this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And so before we get into the sex, let's, let's just walk through this. In order for God's plan for history to come to completion, these seven seals on this scroll must be broken, right? That's why the very next verse in Revelation 5, an angel cry out, and he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We need someone to break the seals to this scroll. And this is why John weeps in verse 3, because if no one can do it, then all of human existence is actually pointless, it's actually meaningless. But then the Lamb of God, Jesus, he steps onto the scene and we see that he and he alone is the one who is worthy to take this scroll from the Father, break its seals, and in doing so, unravel this scroll so that all of human history can actually come to fruition. God's plan for us can actually be completed. So let me just, let me just make sure that we do understand this. Before we get into Revelation 6 tonight, when and if these seven seals are broken, and when and if this scroll is unraveled, we recognize tonight what that means, right? I just want us to be all on the same page from the get-go. If the scroll is unraveled, what happens? What's well, the end of the world? It's the end of everything as we currently know it. If this scroll unravels, it's the end, period. And so perhaps a good question to start us off tonight is, when's this going to happen? When are these seals that are containing this scroll, when are these seals going to be open? Is it going to be next year? Is it going to be 10 years from now? Is it going to be 100 years from now? Is it going to be 1,000 years from now? When are these seals going to be broken so that this scroll can actually unravel? I think the question, the answer to that question, actually might surprise you. When will these seals be opened 
Tonight we're going to see they are opened. These seven seals are opened, which means when will the end come? Well, since these seals are opened, what this means is that the end of history, the end of the world could literally happen at any given second. Have you ever witnessed something happen in the blink of an eye? Like in the blink of an eye, in the snap of a finger, something happens to you. One memory that will forever live in my brain of something happening in the blink of an eye, I was 16 years old. I'd had my intermediate license for two months. I think I've told you guys this story before. My dad was in Atlanta, Georgia. My mom was in Cincinnati, Ohio, both about five hours away. And I get the bright idea. I also had mono, just throw that in there. I was supposed to be like bedridden. If I got up out of the bed, like I was supposed to be in trouble. I decided two months intermediate license, I'm gonna get in my car, I'm gonna drive that car, I'm gonna go do whatever I want. Everything's going great. My, my parents don't know, I'm driving this car. And in the blink of an eye, in the snap of a finger, I go around a curve, and just like that, I'm in a ditch. And if you've ever been in a crash, you, knew, you know that it happens just like that. It happens in the blink of an eye. It happens out of nowhere. And what I want to show you tonight is that the end of the world, the return of Jesus, is going to be just like that. You're going to be going about your normal life. Perhaps it's even a Wednesday night, and you're doing your normal Wednesday night routine. You get home from school. You do that thing you always do before you come to Impact. You eat dinner at Impact. You walk in here and you worship. You come sit down and you hear a message, and then boom, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the blink of an eye, before you can even put your finger on it, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is coming down to earth, and the world ends. It can, and it will happen just like that. How do we know that? Because tonight we're going to see that these seals are opened. The seals containing the scroll have been broken, which means the end is imminent. It is near. It is at our fingertips. You guys realize that this means that we, we don't have time to waste. There's a sense of urgency about this message tonight because if this is true, quite literally, it means that Jesus may return before we even finish this message tonight. So we gotta, we gotta look at this text and we gotta figure out how each one of us must urgently, immediately respond to it tonight before it's too late. So if you would, look at the first verse of this text with me. We'll read it aloud, and then we will pray, and then we'll walk through it. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, humbly, we recognize tonight that 
We are living in the last days. We are in the last hour. God, we don't know if we get next week. We don't know if we get tomorrow. We don't know if we get the end of this message, God. We welcome the return of Jesus at any moment. That return is imminent. So God, would you open our eyes tonight to this reality that these seals, it's not a future event that we're waiting for. It is something that has already happened, that is happening, and that will continue to happen until you, Jesus, return and rescue us saints and judge the sinners once and for all. God, open our eyes tonight and cause us to trust in you tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, b- before we, we get into these seals that I'm going to argue are opened, for at least the first half of our message tonight, what we got to do is we got to lay some, some serious, serious groundwork so that when we do get to those seals in the second half of this message, we actually have a, a better chance of being on the same page about what's going on and more pressingly, how we must respond. And so trust me now, we're going to move fast. It's going to be dense. But I need you to lock in tonight. It it could be, not to be dramatic, but it could be one of the most important texts from the Word of God that I can possibly imagine you could hear. And so it's going to take some work, but that work is going to set us up later to understand tonight's passage and, by the way, the rest of this book. So if you're interested in Revelation past tonight, you need the first part of this message. And so to start, first what we're going to do is I'm going to briefly present to you the the three major views of Revelation. The three major views of Revelation. These are the, the three main ways that people read and interpret the events that are described in Revelation. Now, we haven't really talked about any of these views up to this point, and now we're starting chapter 6. Why is that? Well, it really hasn't been necessary yet. Quite frankly, Revelation has been easy up to this point. However, from verse 1 forward, whichever view you hold tonight is actually going to determine, in large part, how you understand the rest of this book. There is so much confusion with Revelation that gets settled tonight with which, with which view we actually take. And before I, I present these views, I just want to say one thing so I don't get in too hot of water tonight, which is inevitably going to happen. But for the sake of time tonight, for the sake of clarity tonight, I, I'm only going to present these three views in the most broad and general way possible. There's going to be variations of each view, but we just don't have time to discuss every variation that exists between these three views. So the broad general view, the three major views of Revelation, the first is the preterist view. And I would encourage you to write these down because, again, this is going to affect, impact, influence the rest of this book. The first view of Revelation, how to read it, how to interpret it, is called the preterist view. And the preterist view basically believes that all the events of Revelation, besides the second coming of Christ have been fulfilled in the past. 
That's what it means to be a preterist. And, and you can actually identify these events with a specific event from the past. So most people who hold to the preterist view, they believe that the events of Revelation that we're going to read tonight and that we'll read for the rest of this school year, they're being fulfilled way back in the past, way back, most believe, in the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Everything happens in Revelation during that span. So, so the point is, to the preterist, everything we read in Revelation, it's already happened. It's in the past. Which means when it comes to the seals in Revelation 6, the preterists believe that the seals, they've already been opened. And not just that they've already been opened, but the preterist specifically believes that each of these seals corresponds to something, a singular event in the past that they can connect it to. That's the preterist view, and we'll talk more about that in a second. The second view is the futurist view. So you got the preterist view, which believes everything happens in the past. You can, you can guess what the futurist believes, right? That the events of Revelation are fulfilled in the future. From Revelation 6-1 onward, it's a futuristic book. And if this sounds familiar, it's because by far, this is the most popular view of Revelation in our world, in our culture, in this part of the world. Many are futurists. And so these people who are futurists, they, they generally believe that everything that happens from this verse, chapter 6, verse 1 onward, to Revelation 22, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen one day in the future, and we're waiting for it to happen. And so the most common way this works out is that most futurists believe that in this chapter tonight, in this first two verses tonight, Jesus actually comes back and he raptures his church. This is coming, they believe. He raptures his church out of the world. And then, after that rapture, a seven-year period of tribulation begins on the earth. And after that seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus comes back again, and here he ushers in his millennium reign. And after that millennium reign, then he ushers in the new heaven and new earth. That's the most common version of the futurist position. It's the most common version that exists in our neck of the woods today. So the point here, to the futurist, everything that you read in Revelation has not happened yet. That's the point. But it's going to happen in the future. And for most of them, the church won't even be here when it does happen. So that means when it comes to these seals, the futurist believes they haven't been opened, right? And that leads us to our third view, our final view, which is the idealist view. Contrary to the preterist and contrary to the futurist, the idealist believes that the events of revelation that you read in this book not literally, but symbolically, describe the past and the present and the future of what is called the church age, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So to the idealist, the events of Revelation, they're not so much about a specific period of time or a specific thing in history, whether that thing be a past or a future event, but instead the idealist believes that all of these events symbolically communicate to us 
what are just ordinary events, commonplace events here on the earth that we can expect to go through during the entire time between Christ's first and second coming. Okay, so, so follow along with me. The idealist reads Revelation and believes that the events of this book have happened in the past, are happening in the present, and will continue to happen into the future. So if you're following, you realize that that actually incorporates both the preterist view and the futurist view. So when it comes to these seals, which we're going to look at, I promise, here soon, the idealist believes that these seals have been opened, that they are being opened, and that they will continue to be opened until Jesus returns, and that they're not singular events. You can't point and say, this is what the second seal represents, but instead you recognize that the second seal represents a whole lot of different things. So maybe you could guess it, but out of these three positions, I take the idealist view of Revelation. And I'm going to tell you why, and as I tell you why I am idealist, I want to unapologetically try to convince you, before we get into these seals, to be an idealist with me. So I'll call this section evidence for the idealist view. Why am I an idealist? Why should you be an idealist when it comes to this book of Revelation? And for time purposes, we we literally cannot talk about every reason why, but I'm just going to give you two what I consider very significant reasons. And the first is just a general reason. The second that I'll give you has to do with our text tonight. It will lead us into our text tonight. And so first off, reason number one, I'm an idealist, and I think you should be an idealist, is we've been instructed by Jesus to read Revelation symbolically. You and I have been instructed by Jesus to read this book, Revelation, symbolically. Just in case you weren't here for that message, or perhaps you just need the reminder like we all do, I want you to look at the screen with me to Revelation 1.1. Revelation 1.1, if you recall, says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then this part is huge. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And if you weren't here, or if you don't remember... That wording, he made it known in verse 1, the very first verse in Revelation, literally translates to, he communicated it by signs and by symbols. And so if you'll remember here, this language, it actually takes us back to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel describes how God has made it known to a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, through a dream, about what's going to happen in the latter days. And so in that chapter of Daniel, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, not literally, because that would be silly, but he, communi- he, he interprets it symbolically. And he explains to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar what it symbolically is communicating. And so I want you to make this connection with me. In verse 1 of Revelation... Jesus is now instructing us as we open this book 
to interpret it, to interpret revelation in the same way that Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So we don't take this book literally. And it's not because we don't want to. It's because Jesus has told us to do it symbolically, to read it, to understand it, because this is how he communicated it symbolically. But the issue is, you can actually agree with that. And I hope you do. Yet you still may say that Revelation uses symbols of historical events that have happened either in the past or in the future, depending on whether you're a preterist or a futurist. And so let me give you this second piece of evidence that's going to lead us into our text tonight. And hopefully it'll sway you once and for all to be an idealist. And it's difficult, but I want you to focus with me. Here it is. We already know that Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, which we took the last two weeks to study, we already know those two chapters take place throughout the entire period of the church age. Which again, if you're unfamiliar with what that means, it's the entire period between Christ's first coming and Christ's second, second coming. And so if, if that's true, then logically... It only makes sense that Revelation 6, which is our text tonight, also is taking place throughout the entirety of the church age, as well as the rest of Revelation. And so let's just take a moment to prove this. How do we know this? Well, first we need to go back and establish that Revelation 4 and 5 does in fact take place throughout the entirety of the church age. And so recall with me with what happens in Revelation 4. You can look back there with me if you want. You, you got John, he is invited to step into heaven. And as he does, he sees four living creatures. And he sees 24 elders falling down at the throne of God in worship. And then immediately, we walk into Revelation 5, where after he sees these living creatures and 24 elders falling down in worship, he then notices there's a scroll in God's hand on his throne, and we meet the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, who is worthy to take this seal Because he has been slain and he is now alive, he's worthy to take this scroll from God on his throne and then all of heaven proceeds to worship him. That's Revelation 4 and then Revelation 5. And so let me ask this question. Just follow my train of thought. Has Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 already happened in the past? I hope you would say Of course it has. Why? Because we know Jesus died on a cross. He rose from the dead three days later. Forty days later after that, he ascended into heaven. And what happens as soon as Jesus ascends into heaven? Revelation 5. He walks up to the Father. He takes the scroll. And immediately he receives honor and glory and power. He doesn't have to wait thousands of years for that to happen. Immediately, he takes the scroll as soon as he ascends into heaven 2,000 years ago. 
So, of course, it took place in the past. But now let me ask you this question. Is Revelation 4 and 5 happening right now? Is what we read in Revelation 4 and what we read in Revelation 5 currently happening right now as we speak? I would hope, once again, you'd say, of course. Because Jesus ascended to heaven, he took the scroll from the Father, all of heaven bows down and worships him, and do they stop? Of course they don't stop. It happens when he ascends into heaven, it continues to happen, not just once, but it never stops. They don't get bored and move on to different things. He is the object of our worship in heaven. We don't stop worshiping him. And so these living creatures and these elders, they continue to worship Jesus. It's not just a past event that happened once 2,000 years ago. It's a present event that's going on right now in heaven. Jesus is getting all worship, all honor, because he deserves all worship and all honor. Now let me ask one final question. This is a big one. Will Revelation 4 and 5 continue to happen into the future? And the answer again is, of course. Of course it will happen tomorrow. Of course it will happen next week. Of course it will happen five years down the road. Because until the day Jesus returns from heaven, he is going to continue to receive that worship that he deserves. It doesn't stop. It's a past event. It's a present event. It's a future event. Does this make sense? And so here's what doesn't make sense then. If we agree on that, that Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 are past, present, and future events that is happening throughout the age of the church, throughout Jesus' first and second, the time between Jesus' first and second coming, if we agree on that, then why, or rather how, can some of us turn to Revelation 6 and then suddenly think that these events haven't happened yet? Or that they've only happened in the past? Or that they only happen in the future? I'm just going to be honest. I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I want you to notice here as we leak into our text, there, there's no indication of a break. There's no pause between Revelation 5 and Revelation 6. I want you to look, look with me at how Revelation 5 ends and how Revelation 6 begins. You realize that man put that 6 there. John didn't write the 6. John just kept writing. And here's what he says. He says, After the Lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. No pause. Now immediately, I had the immediately. Now immediately I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. So to me here, as I'm reading this, we're not opening up to chapter 6 and now suddenly reading a brand new vision that is totally distinct from what has just taken place in chapter 5. It doesn't happen thousands and thousands of years later. It takes place immediately when the lamb takes the scroll. That's the picture I see. As soon as Jesus takes the scroll from the Father, he immediately begins to break the seven seals. On Sunday mornings, 
we take our kids to uh, First Fruits Farm. It's one of my highlights of the morning because they love going to First Fruits Farm. And the reason they love going to First Fruits Farm, one of the main reasons is because there's a big sucker tree before you walk into First Fruits Farm. If you've never been here, it is cool. You need to go check it out. There's a big tree in the middle. How did it get there? I don't know. And in the tree, there's four holes that you can put your arm in and out comes just a plethora of suckers. It's crazy. And our kids have no self-control. And so they stick their little arms in and out comes four, five, six suckers. And here's what they proceed to do. They have tiny little pockets. They'll put one sucker here. They'll put one sucker here. They'll put one sucker there, one sucker there. Maddox usually has a little pocket in it. Put one sucker there. It's like, buddy, like, you going to eat all those? And what's he telling me? I save them for later. I save them for later. He's saving his suckers for later. He, he stuffs as many suckers into his pockets as possible so that he can save them, eat them later. Here's the question. Does Jesus take this scroll and like stuff it into his pockets like, I save it for later. I open this later. That's not the vision we get. The vision I see is that he takes this scroll and he ain't saving nothing for later. He starts to break the seals. And so yes, as the preterists suggest, these seals were open in the past. They're right. But if chapters 4 and 5 are also taking place in the present and they're going to take place in the future, what must this mean? It means that these seals must also be currently being opened in the present. They're going to continue to be opened into the future because it's a symbolic picture of the past, present, and future of the church age. It's a symbolic picture of what's happening here on earth during the intermediate heaven until Christ comes back. So why am I an idealist? And why do I think you should be an idealist? I'd say because what we read in Revelation, yes, it happened in the past, but it's also happening now in the present. It's going to continue to happen into the future throughout the entire age of the church. God is on his throne right now. Jesus has taken the scroll right now, and he is breaking the seals right now. So what does that mean? Let's quickly just tie a bow on this, and then I promise we're going to run through this text. Three quick observations. Three quick observations. These are crucial. Just to summarize, first, what this means is that these seals that we're about to read, they have been opened ever since Jesus took the scroll. And that they're continuing to be opened right now as we speak, and they will continue to continue to be opened until Jesus returns. Second, this means that these seals symbolically represent a whole lot of events, many events throughout the entire church age. They're not meant to tie to one singular event in the past or the future unless that event is the coming of Christ. And then third and finally, this means that the church, guess what, is here during the seals. We are on earth during the contents of these seals. So I'll throw a tricky word out there. Some of you know what it means. Why am I a post-tribulationist? 
which believes that Jesus doesn't come back and rapture his church before the tribulation begins, but Jesus comes back after the tribulation. Why am I a post-tribulationist? Because the way I understand this thing is that these seals, which are a part of the tribulation, they've been opened. They're being opened. They're going to continue to be opened until Jesus returns, and clearly, we're still here. So we lay all that important groundwork, and I know it's a lot, but, but here we get to finally get into these seals. And I hope we're on the same page about this. The contents of these seals that we're about to read, they have been unleashed. They are being unleashed, and they will continue to be unleashed until Jesus returns. They're opened. So now it's time to turn our attention to what's actually happening with the first four seals. So first, let's obviously start with the first seal. Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says this. John says, now I watched when the lamb, he just took, took the scroll, the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer that is the first seal now a lot of people they, they look at this first seal and they believe that the rider on this white horse is Jesus Many futurists and many pre-tribulationists believe that this is the seal when Jesus comes down from heaven, he raptures his church from the earth before the rest of the seals are opened and the tribulation really begins. Other people look at the rider on this white horse and they think it's a symbol of Jesus and that it pictures the gospel going forth throughout all the earth, conquering, spreading to the ends of the world. In fact, this is what our senior pastor, Brother Ricky Cunningham, believes. Now, to my knowledge, this is basically the only place in Revelation, and I pray the last place in Revelation, that me and Brother Ricky aren't actually going to agree on something. Now, I want you to hear me say that Brother Ricky is incredibly more wise than I am. And he knows Revelation incredibly better than I do. So perhaps that means that you should ignore what I believe about this first seal and side with him. I wouldn't be offended. However, I'm going to struggle with his view, and I'm going to struggle with the, the view before that. And the reason is actually really simple. In my opinion, this rider on a white horse isn't Jesus at all. It's not Jesus in my opinion. Now, I understand why people believe it's Jesus, think it's Jesus, and they may be right, because many of you know that Revelation 19, Jesus is, in fact, pictured as coming down from heaven, riding on a white horse. And so to, to some, this first seal, which contains a rider on a white horse, well, then it must be Jesus. But I'm going to argue that's not the case. And I actually, preparing for this message, I came up with 11 reasons why I don't think that's the case. I can't share it with you tonight. 
My theology class at New Covenant got to hear that, so you can, you can steal their notes from them. But for tonight, suffice it to say this. Throughout this book of Revelation, you're going to have another character. His name is Satan. And Satan regularly attempts to imitate God in this book. Regularly. It's all over the place. Satan imitates God. And so if I don't believe this rider on the white horse is Jesus, and I have my reasons why, then who would I say it is? Well, some people would agree with me, and they say, well, you're saying it's the Antichrist. And I'm not necessarily saying it's the Antichrist, but if this writer isn't Jesus, in my opinion, what I would say is it's some form of satanic imitation of Jesus. This is the theme, I promise. Throughout, you're going to see this throughout this book. Satan loves to imitate God. And so I think this first seal with a writer sitting on a white horse is one of those times when Satan attempts to imitate and rival the one true God. This is what he's done from the beginning of the world. Now, is it Satan himself? I think that's possible. Is this an, is this an agent of Satan, like a demon? I, I think that's possible. Could it be a human being used by Satan to accomplish his purposes? Maybe. But because there's just so much unknown, it, I think, just personally, it's probably unwise for us to take a firm position on who the identity of this writer is. It's probably not wise. But I personally think that it's either an agent of Satan or it's Satan himself who was allowed to go throughout all the earth conquering. That's the first seal. And I would remind you of 1 Peter 5.8, which says that we as the church, we're to be sober-minded, we're to be watchful. Why? Because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Who else is a lion? Jesus. Seeking someone to devour. I think it's okay here. I think we have the license here to interchangeably use devour and conquer. I think they're describing the same thing. So that's what I believe is going on with this first seal. Some form of satanic imitation of Jesus, perhaps Satan himself, that's likely, goes throughout the earth and he's devouring everyone in his path. He's not an enemy to be trifled with. He is seeking to oppress. He is seeking to destroy. He is seeking to conquer. And just to be clear, that includes you and me. We're here on earth. This is the first seal. It's been opened, it is being opened, and it will continue to be opened until Jesus returns. And that takes us to the second seal. Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4 says this. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So follow along with me here. Like this first seal, we got another rider who comes out on a horse. But this time, this horse is bright red, which of course is the color of what? Blood. And that's not ironic because the purpose of this rider is to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And so just to give more support for my position that I just argued with the first seal, I would argue that just like this first seal, this is a bad guy walking out of this seal. This isn't a good guy. This is a bad guy. This is some kind of evil agent of Satan, of destruction. 
Now, again, I need you to understand that under my idealist view of Revelation, I'm not reading the second seal and trying to look at things in the past or in the future that describe a singular specific event that is going to happen or it has happened. I've heard it said that this seal corresponds to World War II, this second seal. For those of you who don't know, it makes sense because World War II, to date, is the bloodiest war in human history, at least in modern human history, where an estimated, I believe, it was like 80 million people lost their lives. But as an idealist, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to read Revelation this way. Because to the idealist, this seal doesn't represent one war. It represents all the wars. It represents all the bloodshed that has ever happened in the church age, that is happening in the church age, and that will continue to happen in the church age until Jesus comes back. So in that way, yes, seal number two symbolically represents World War II. But you know what else it represents? It represents World War I. It represents the Korean War. It represents the Vietnam War. It represents the Civil War. It represents all the wars that the U.S., of course, haven't been involved with because we're not the center of the world. It also represents all the wars that are currently taking place in Ukraine, in Israel. It represents wars that we don't even know about yet, that are coming, unless Jesus returns. So the point I'm trying to make here with this second seal is it's not corresponding to one singular event. It is symbolically communicating the unfortunate yet ordinary experience of war that has, is, and will continue to happen until Christ returns. We hate it, we're right to hate it, but that's the reality of our lives. It's a part of the second seal. And it's been opened, it's being opened, and it will continue to be opened until Jesus returns. And that leads us to the third seal, Revelation 6, 5 and 6. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. A little bit difficult. I'm going to try and make this simple. This third seal, we see another rider. This time, he's on a black horse. And his purpose is to cause famine throughout the earth. There's a scarcity of wheat. There's a scarcity of barley. Don't harm the oil and wine. There's a famine going on in this third seal. You might not know this, but right now as we speak, currently... We're in the largest global food crisis of modern history. Now, you're not touched by this in the United States of America. But let me read you a brief paragraph. It comes directly from the UN World Food Program. And let me open your eyes to what's going on outside of this country. This is what it says. I read this this week. It says nearly 350 million people. 350 million people around the world are experiencing the most extreme forms of hunger right now. Of those, 49 million people are on the brink of famine. 
malnourished mothers give birth to malnourished babies, passing hunger from one generation to the next. Children's physical and cognitive growth is stunted. Farmers are unable to grow enough food to provide for their families and communities. Entire towns are forced to leave their homes in search of food. If that weren't enough, let me me read this from World Vision. It says, today, nearly 45 million people in 37 countries are at risk of starvation. Due to a lack of adequate nutrition, 22 million children are suffering from wasting. If you don't know what that is, it says that it's severe weight loss that can lead to death if not treated. To wrap your mind around that, this number is equal to the combined populations, combined, of New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, and Philadelphia. Combine those cities, the populations of those cities, that tells you the amount of people around the world that are at risk of starvation. So as people living in the U.S., I get it, but we need to look around and realize that like war, famine is tied into the world around us. There have been countless famines over the past 2,000 years. There are countless famines going on right now as we speak, and there are countless famines that are sure to continue until Christ returns because that's precisely what this third seal is communicating. It has been opened. It is being opened. It will continue to be opened until Jesus leaves heaven and returns. And that takes us to the fourth seal, Revelation 6, 7, and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider, its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence, which is disease, and by wild beasts of the earth. And so for this fourth seal, another rider comes out. This time he is on a pale horse. And this time, thankfully for us, we are actually given a name to this rider. His name is Death. And following Death is Hades, which is the place of Death. And notice what Death and Hades together are able to do. They're able, they're allowed to kill one-fourth of the earth with sword, famine, disease, and wild beasts. Now, since the ascension of Christ, if you add up the number of people who have died in war, who have died by famine, who have died by disease, and who have died by wild beasts, does that equal 25%? Answer, I have no idea. I have no idea. But that's okay because mathematical precision is not the point here. The point here is that this seal symbolically represents death, destruction, and despair that has, is, and will continue on the earth until Christ returns. So the reality of the world we live in is that people are going to make war. Famines are going to strike. Diseases are going to spread. And unfortunately, many, many people are going to die. This is the fourth seal. Guys, this is heavy stuff. During the church age, while you and I are still here, this is the ordinary, commonplace experiences that you face on earth. War, famine, disease, 
tribulations. These seals to this scroll, at least the first four of them, and I'll argue the fifth as well, they've been opened. They are opened. They are being opened, which means if that's true, this scroll, which represents the end of the world, this scroll that Jesus is holding, it is almost completely unraveled. You guys realize what this means, right? It means that the end is not just near. It's not just near. It is actually here. I need you to hear me tonight. I need you to believe me tonight because this is what God's word is teaching tonight. We are possibly months, weeks, days, minutes, possibly seconds away from this scroll being unfolded. is terrifying for some of us in this room. And when it happens, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is not going to stay in heaven any longer. He's going to come back down to earth, and it will be the end of the world as we know it. He will judge sinners once and for all, and he will save his church once and for all. This is serious stuff. I promise you, this is more serious than whatever you got planned for After Impact tonight. I promise you, this is more serious than whatever you got planned tomorrow, whatever you got planned this weekend. And because it's so serious, it's got to lead us into this final section of the night. Based on all this, the reality that these seals are opened, what in the world should we do? Nothing to this point matters unless you get this last section. Nothing matters that you know about the tribulation. Nothing matters that you know about the seals unless it leads you into doing this tonight. The fact that Jesus is imminently going to return to the earth, the Holy One, to save his people and to plunge sinners into eternal hell, what do we do? First, If you are still an unbeliever tonight, as of right now, it is not too late for you to trust in Jesus. And just to be clear, I say as of right now because I mean as of right now. In this second, with this breath, right now, you still have a chance to repent and trust in Jesus for your salvation. However, in the next second, with the next breath, that chance may be taken away from you for all of eternity because the king may come down from the clouds. His return is imminent. Some of you need to stop consuming your mind with things of this world and start consuming your mind with how if that happens in this next second, he would plunge you into a lake of fire where you would spend all of eternity in anguish and despair. Like, who gives a rip about your grades? Who gives a rip about your sports? Who gives a rip about your popularity status when the fact that if Christ comes back right now, none of it matters? You will get plunged into eternal hell and it will be far too late. Nothing else matters than your relationship with Jesus Christ tonight. Your work doesn't matter. Your school doesn't matter. Your team doesn't matter. 
Your relationship with Christ matters, and it is not too late as of right now for you to trust in him. What are you waiting on if you're an unbeliever? I promise you don't need to wait on him to return because then it'll be too late. But second, to believers, hear me. This passage is for us too because it, it's pleading with us that it's not too late for us to lead a friend to Jesus. I trust that if you're a believer, you love your neighbor. You love your siblings. You love your classmates, your teammates. First off, praise God that if Christ comes back in this second, you don't have to fear because you're safe. But what about all those other people? What about those unbelievers in this room here tonight? What about your classmates in your math class tomorrow? What about your teammates? What about your teachers? What about your siblings? What about your parents? What about the people in your life who haven't trusted in Jesus? Do you realize what these open seals mean? The end is imminent, and for these unbelievers in your life, that is not good. So to be honest, just to be frank, I don't know if you're going to get tomorrow. But if you do get tomorrow, what these open seals mean is you and I, we have to go throughout the world, our schools, our homes, our communities, and tell these people about Jesus, period. I'm not trying to make this overly dramatic, overly simplistic. It's just true. The seals are open. Christ is coming back, and they will go to hell. So what are we waiting on? Are we really more concerned about our sports, our grades, our status than their soul? We literally do not have time left to waste, believers. This mission is priority A. So with every head bowed in this room and every eyes closed, I want to give a chance for first off, unbelievers who have denied Jesus time and time and time and time again, who are waiting for that day, the right day, for you to come to Christ. I want to beg you, implore you tonight, be reconciled to God now. If that is you, you're an unbeliever in this room and you want to give your life to Christ tonight because you don't want to wait, you don't want to be an enemy of God, but you want to welcome Jesus onto earth as your Lord and your Savior with every eye closed and every head bowed tonight. Unbelievers, if that's you, would you take the next 10 seconds to just Look up, raise your hand, and make eye contact with me. For my believers, I want you to pray in this moment for God to show you one person, just one, in your life, a sibling, a parent, a classmate, a teammate, who you know if Christ comes back, they're not okay. The seals are opened. Why aren't you sharing with them? Tomorrow, tonight, 
would you share the gospel with that person? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are good. But you are righteous and you are just. These seals are opened. Jesus is coming back, either as our judge or as our savior. God, I pray that unbelievers tonight would not trifle, would not waste another second, but would come to faith in Jesus, that they would stick around, they would have a conversation with the leader tonight, and they would trust in you. I pray that believers would make this mission to preach the gospel, priority A. Nothing else matters more than this, Lord. 